Did you know Shopify doesn't allow more than 100 combinations of options on a product? What? No. Fortunately, there's a solution. Bold Product Options app, the number one options app on Shopify. Tell me more. It allows you to create as many options on products as you want in every type you can imagine. Like what? File uploads, text fields, text areas, radio buttons, checkboxes, color swatches, date pickers, and a couple others I forgot. Wow. Now, not only can it change prices on products, or those options can actually be products too. How so? All right, here's an example. An option could be add the matching hat or add a protective case. And then when customers select it, it actually adds that product in the checkout, increasing your average order value. But I hate long forms. Well, to boost conversions, Bold's conditional logic feature lets you show or hide options based off of what customers pick. For example, if you select custom engraving, then we only want to show the custom engraving text field after they've checked that box. Okay, where can I get it? If you need sophisticated options or just more than the standard 100 variant limit, this is the app you need. Right now, Bold is offering listeners of the unofficial Shopify podcast their product options app free for two months. Just go to kurtelster.com slash bold to install it and get your exclusive offer. That's kurtelster.com slash bold. I'm heading there now. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You already know the benefits of SEO. The higher you rank in search, the more visitors you get, and more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do it? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines more easily, and it's trusted by thousands of store owners. No surprise there, it's equal parts power, innovation, and ease of use. Think of SEO Manager as your optimization toolbox. Here's some examples. It can scan your site for issues, offer keyword suggestions, add structured data support, analyze missing pages and redirects, and even integrate with Kit plus a ton more tools to help you be easily found in Google searches. Best of all, it's easy to get started. You can get started in minutes, and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Seriously, I have met them. They are the best. And as a special offer to you, you can get 10% off SEO Manager forever when you sign up at seomanager.com unofficial. That's seomanager.com unofficial. So the, the topic today that you and I are going to discuss, because you are mm. like the e-commerce conversion rate optimization guy, mm. is common blind spots in conversion rate optimization for Shopify stores. That's right. Okay. That's what I want to go through. And you, Nick DeSavado, who are you? Why do I care what you have to say about conversion rate optimization? Well, I run Draft, a design consultancy for Shopify stores. I've been doing conversion rate optimization in some capacity since 2013. Uh, so that's probably longer than you've heard of A-B tests existing. I've run over 500 tests for over 50 stores. Uh, other clients, my clients include The Wirecutter, Planet of the Vapes, um, lots of other brands that you may or may not have heard of. Smart Marketer, uh, Boom by Cindy Joseph. Those related things. Uh, to, yeah. Oh, so so yeah, uh, you worked with with Ezra Firestone and his brands. Yeah, I worked with him for three and a half years. Tech nasty. That's him. That's I the... know, right? 
That's my favorite sound drop is Ezra Firestone. Oh uh, so how many, well, what are the common mistakes? Or actually, you know, let's rephrase this differently. When someone approaches conversion rate optimization, their first instinct is to do what? Their first instinct is to rip off everyone else. Because uh, okay. they see things that they think work. They think everyone else is smarter than them. And so they take these ideas and they're like, oh, that looks interesting. Or they hear about a blogger doing something they're like, oh, that's interesting. And then they, or this, this worked for this other store, our competitor. And they, they take that and they run with it and it doesn't work for them. And they're like, well, why didn't this work? Well, there are a lot of reasons why it might not have worked. And the main thing is that you didn't think about what really worked for you, right? You didn't go back to first principles and think about the customers that are coming into your store. I think it's a huge problem. So you, it's uh, it's shiny toy syndrome. It's the grass is always greener. So I go outside and I see, oh, well, this, you know, across the street, this other store has this way cooler sign than me. And I perceive them as being more successful. Reality, mm -hmm. I have no idea what their business is like at all. But I just perceive them as being more successful for whatever reason. And I say, all right, well, and then I just attribute that to whatever thing I notice and like. Yeah. And thus we have some shiny toy syndrome action happening. And I think that is where people get in trouble. Yeah, I think that's right. Like what ends up happening, I had this conversation with a client a few months ago where they were like, our biggest competitor is doing this. We should do this. I'm like, well, how do you know that they're doing it right? And they were just like, <laughs> and just like shocked. And yeah. I'm like, what do you think their conversations were internally that led them to this decision? And then, then and the response to that was, they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, what you don't realize is that everyone is a group of smart people on a Zoom call trying to figure it out in the dark like everyone else. Yes. Yeah. We're all in a cave with a candle and maybe there's eight people with candles. Uh, they might do slightly better, but we still it's such a young industry and it evolves so quickly that I don't literally I don't think anybody knows what they're doing. No one knows what they're doing, right? I don't like, know what I'm doing. To go back to Ezra Firestone, he had a series, I think he still has a series that's just called What Works Now, right? And that's wildly popular because it gives you clarity and safety and a sense of strategy for cheap, right? Like, you could just go and look at this and be like, oh, that works. Okay, great. And a lot of it actually does work because the problem with conversion rate optimization is that in many ways, it's like getting to just basic first principles getting some best practices in place, getting something that's familiar for customers. And that makes sense to people, right? But then when it comes to doing something that's more like custom tailored to the specific needs of your customers, everybody's just like, I don't, like they don't know what to do with it. And that's where I come in. Uh, and so what should people be doing instead so we've established that like the shiny toy syndrome, the grass is always greater. That is problematic. Mm -hmm. And you're just kind of, when you're doing that, you are, you're blindly throwing stuff against the wall, which there could be, you know, you're going to get successes some of the time, but we need a, we need a framework. We need a better approach here. So how yeah. should I be approaching it? And then we'll get into like the most common pitfalls or missed opportunities. Yeah, I'll tell um, kind of an anecdote that I like to tell my clients, especially when they first come in the door. Uh, if you ran a physical store, right? Assuming those still exist, I don't even know. Um, but if you ran a physical store, people come in, right? And there's some amount of foot traffic and you, the owner of that store are behind the counter and you can observe, right? Or you can talk to them. And 
So the problem is twofold. Number one, you can't, you aren't observing them. And the second is that you can't talk to them necessarily. You can't be like, hey, do you have any questions? And what happens in that process of observation and conversation in a physical store is that you understand the customer's needs a little bit better. You may not close the first few sales, but eventually you'll understand, oh, people are coming in for this. I should be maybe making a couple changes to the store, changing the way that I'm marketing myself or putting the this stuff over here or whatever it is, right? And so there's a, something that's observable that you can see, right? Now, how do you take that process and apply it to e-commerce? Well, um, I think that you can actually look at what customers are doing and ask them what motivates them. I don't think that's difficult. The problem is that when you're stuck behind a computer all day and you're as nerdy as I am, you it's not your default to go out and talk to customers. It's not your default to go out and observe what customers are doing. And when you try to do that, you're stuck in an application like Google Analytics, which is bad. Uh, so the process of understanding what customers say and what customers do is a little bit more slippery and difficult, but no less essential, right? So how do you go about doing that? Um, well, a lot of the tech industry has figured this out and it's using a lot of unsexy terms like research and analytics and data, right? I like these things. This Now uh, I'm getting excited. I like these things because that's why I get up in the morning. I get up to research customers, right? And you may not. You may be, if you're listening to this and you're a store owner, you're probably waking up to ship more product to customers, grow the store, grow the business. You might be thinking about BI stuff, if, if I'm lucky <laughs> and you're my client. Um, and uh, I think that for me, like the fundamental answer is that you need to go out and understand what your customers are doing and you need to be a little bit more proactive about it. And this doesn't come naturally in retail as an industry, right? Because normally the people come to you and you can just look at them and that's the research. Like the research already just happened because people were shopping with you and you understood what made them really light up and buy your stuff. Um, and you got that feedback on a daily basis. But really, all you're getting is feedback is people complaining about that where their order is and um, occasionally anecdotes from your friends about the products. That's like your research process. And maybe if you're lucky, you go in and look at GA and you think, oh, the conversion rate is bad today. That's but, it. But Nick, I'm my best customer. I know what they want. No, you don't. I don't. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. You're right. Where's I know what I want, and my worldview has quickly been wildly warped by being so close to everything yeah. as the business owner. Yeah, exactly. Like, you are actually... Un it gives me no pleasure to report that you are maybe the worst example of a customer <laughs> if you're the store owner. Okay. You're... And so... Yeah. Once we accept... that When you're starting out and you have no customers, like, you don't have a choice. But, like, at some point, you have to move beyond that. And then that's where you start. You need to start figuring out your customer. And you're right. Online, it is so impersonal and divorced that it gets strange. And so you need to go through and do the customer research. Talk to your customers on the phone. Oh, my gosh. Pick up the phone. Right. Give them a call. And uh, uh, try and uncover, okay, how do they see themselves? Why do they buy? And then also do it at a larger scale through customer surveys. And mm -hmm. one thing I've heard you say that I love, and I because I have found exactly the same thing to be true, is you do a customer survey, and often you can find that like that one magic phrase that suddenly becomes the headline on the website, and that's the thing that really increases conversion rate. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that people don't get. 
And my favorite example of this of all time is for uh, ChicagoBrickOven.com, who is in Chicago and sells brick ovens. And we did this exercise. We did the customer survey. And their homepage headline then became, the oven and the pizza I cooked became the sensation of my small town. So literally, the conversion rate optimization result of a customer survey was a real quote from a customer basically saying, I bought a pizza oven that made me the mayor. Oh my God, that's so fantastic. And so if you're just sitting around going, I'm my own best customer, you're never getting that headline. You're never getting that optimization and that lift in conversion rate. Yeah, and, and to give another example, actually, with Ezra Firestone, what we did was we swapped out all of the product detail pages um, headlines. Normally, it's the name of the product, right? Right. We changed it to a like brief blurb from a customer, which I pulled out of the review section. So it wasn't even, I didn't even get on the phone with anybody. I went into their reviews, found a coherent looking sentence, ran an A-B test with three different of these, and then conversion rate went up, I think, or uh, add to cart rate went up 19%, conversion rate went up like 12. Woo! Cool. Great. Yeah, that doggle hunt. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing, like, people want those stories in certain industries, right? Like, that can be very emotionally impactful for people. And that's just one tactic, right? Like, I'm not saying do this and then test it and it will always win. The challenge is finding out what to research, when to research it, why to be researching it, and when to prioritize the kind of research that you're getting in. And that's where it makes sense to probably be hiring somebody who's been doing this for seven and a half years and has seen literally everything. Because um, it depends on your industry, it depends on your size, it depends on um, really what your customers are motivated by. Maybe the quote works, I don't know. Might. So the we talked about that that quote, that headline example, I think one of the things that, that gets a lot of attention and probably also results in a lot of gnashing of teeth are uh, homepage mastheads. You know, the oh. that most basic of like page layouts. You get your logo, your menu, and a car image carousel with a headline and a button. Yeah. Oh boy, I bet someone has opinions on this. I have a Please. lot of, I have a lot of opinions on homepage I want mastheads. an airing of grievances here. Oh my God, where to begin? So... Homepage mastheads are one of those things that can take me five minutes to change, but ultimately it's like six months of holding space for the psychic heat death of my clients when I do <laughs> things that are bold. And because it's, you know, there are sort of like two of the biggest leverage things that I can do on a store are homepage masthead and updating your filtering and sorting mechanisms to actually match what your customers are trying to do on your category pages. Um, one of those is very easy to research the problems with and come up with a solution and very hard to code. One of them is very easy to code and very hard to actually implement because everyone has an opinion about it. And that's your homepage masthead. Everyone in the organization has it. And so I have to come up with a whole strategy around rolling out homepage masthead improvements, uh, making sure everybody is comfortable with it, and then heading off continuously for the entire duration of the engagement attempts to incur upon the research that we have come up with for the homepage masthead. Your ability to accept the research and execute on it for your homepage masthead tells me everything I need to know about your ego as a client. Everything. There are no gods. <laughs> and... So tell me what... Uh, give me practical advice here. If... I want to be Nick D's dream client, and I want to approach my the the homepage masthead, the image carousel, hero, whatever it is, and I want to approach this in a sane way that does not get me dragged into the principal's office, in which Nick D is the principal and he's hangry. Oh my God. What do I do? So, um, 
Well, the first thing is listen to the research, right? And usually the research bears out doing things that you might not want to hear. Um, the biggest one is ditching your carousel. Uh, almost all research for every client I've done states that you really shouldn't have more than one slide on your masthead. I'm terribly sorry. This is just grief. We're all going to have to suffer right now. And the reason that you have a carousel is to basically manage internal trench warfare around the homepage masthead and your customers don't care. They, just they don't. don't. They absolutely don't. They and many them. customers will never even see the homepage or land on it. And they're if certainly I... not sitting through a slideshow. Yeah, they're not going to sit through a slideshow. I mean, most carousel research indicates that uh, somewhere between 88 and 93% of your clicks happen on the first module of the carousel. So anything that you put beyond that is getting buried and also getting loaded, which means it's a full bleed image, which increases page weight. And it also is confusing. As an, uh, as an easy exercise anyone could do, if you want to see why we find, why the, the, the image carousel is less important than you think, and why you're probably thinking about it too hard, get rid of it, replace it with a collection of your best-selling in-stock products, and try it. See what happens. You... It's like an 8% bump every time. <laughs> yes. And you'll be like, why did I spend so much time worrying at a headline when I didn't even need this thing to begin with? But I mean, again, it's this one that's like, you have to test it. You have to try it. I mean, the wildest thing is like, I come in and I'm like, there's all this research that says we should do this bold change on the homepage. And they're like, well, you're the consultant, do it. And then I do it. And then the conversion rate goes up by 9% and they think I'm a wizard. <laughs> and it happens every... And then I get like the overhead to do the rest of my job. And I just think like... If everyone did that already out of the gate, like, I don't know what I would have to fall back on as a consultant to make myself look good. I, I think it would be, I'm sort of just undermining myself talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, let's, yeah. So one of the, the really overlooked sections for sure, I think, is collection pages. Like, when I think about when a page get, or site gets built and it gets designed and developed and then tweaked and improvised, the page that always gets the least amount of attention in this flow is the collection page. Yeah. It's like, all right, we got our menus and our homepage, our product detail page, our cart page, maybe even our checkout and shipping options. But that darn collection page just keeps getting ignored. Where are we going wrong with these collection pages? You're going wrong with the collection pages because doing them properly requires code and it requires thinking like a tech business, whereas everything else on your store can usually be handled by a relatively lightweight process of like wireframing, prototyping, just dropping stuff in, seeing what happens. Um, the collection page becomes a lot more difficult because individual collection pages probably need to be designed in different ways. And what I mean about that is if you have a category page for a subset of your products, like say you sell apparel, right? Shirts has a specific layout around sizing, around sleeve length, around material, around colors that may be different from your pants. Sizing is gonna be different for pants, right? Um, and then those are in turn going to be different from new arrivals, right? What do you put for filters on new arrivals? Do you put every possible size that can exist? So you have pant sizes, scope to shirts on new arrivals? No, that's preposterous. But people do it, right? Um, sometimes their category pages should look a little bit different from their subcategory pages. The best example of this that I have seen in the past five years they just redesigned is Design Within Reach. Go to dwr.com, go to like furniture, then chairs, then lounge chairs, and you will see different layouts for each one of those pages. Amazing. Um, 
and and so those are those are like technical dynamic content things that affect the information architecture of the store. The words information architecture don't exist in e-commerce and they exist in every other part of the tech industry. Isn't that weird? Uh, wild. The mind I did melts. just like traditional web design for several years and they were so much more invested in information architecture that they called it IA. They had slowed it down to that. They even argued about what goes into that versus other adjacent uh, professions within web design. But in e-commerce, you don't really see this stuff discussed. It's kind of odd. Yeah, and it's because e-commerce is much more business-focused, and they've got like these very clear, almost universal KPIs to follow. And then those people, it's like no God but conversion rate. Right, right. And and then the, the other thing that, that causes this to happen, so there's the like institutional issues, but then there's also the incentivization around it. I think that a lot of the quantitative data that you end up getting in on collection pages, this never gets talked about, um, disincentivizes the work that's necessary to actually work on them. Um, so for example, analytics, time on page for collection pages is usually low. Um, okay, that makes sense. That means that people are kind of stopping through on the way to a product detail page and then examining products more closely. So if customers are putting more effort into their product detail pages, we should put a lot more effort into the product detail page, right? No. How do you know what product detail pages to actually be loading as a customer? The collection page. Second, heat maps. Um, you get back a heat map that looks good on the face of things, but is actually bad. So hmm. what do I mean by that? You get a heat map with really high scroll depth, which means people are getting the bottom of the page. That's good on every other page on your store and disastrous on your collection page. Because if people are getting the bottom without clicking, they didn't find anything they wanted. How is this What if this they get hard? to the bottom, but they do click that pagination? That pagination is just a rainbow of clicks. Yeah, the pagination is a rainbow of clicks because they still haven't found anything. They should be clicking products, right? They click pagination, that's not good. They click the breadcrumb navigation, that's not good. And you see the page light up like a Christmas tree in all the wrong places, right? And it doesn't look like it actually makes sense when you're just going in. You have to just think differently with your collection pages when you're analyzing their heat maps. And I don't see that as part of the conversation in e-commerce. I feel like this should be, which is I guess why I'm on the podcast, right? <laughs> So. You are wildly changing how I view collection pages. But to your point, the thing I have found consistently is when we added good sidebar filtering, um, you know, where like products were tagged and then we use those to power various filters, like much more what you would expect to see on a large catalog e-commerce website, mm -hmm. um, you know, something like huge, like Crutchfield. You could do that on your Shopify store. It just takes an app to power that sidebar filter. Crutchfield. The one I've had great success with, um, product filter and search by Booster Apps. That, that one, genuine plug, I have used it on several stores, and it works very well to achieve exactly what Nick is suggesting. Crutchfield is a perfect example, actually. And we, um, I, I will openly admit to ripping off Crutchfield for one of my clients, who uh, they're the biggest seller of vintage Volkswagen parts on the internet, right? That's cool. Which is amazing, right? So you have an old VW Beetle from the 60s or whatever, and you need a place to go and buy all the weird interior upholstery widgets, you know, nuts and bolts that you need for it, right? Well, okay, I'm thinking about this from a standpoint of you don't own every possible model, make, and year, and everything of a vintage Volkswagen. So why is the store scoped to all of Volkswagen? It shouldn't be. 
The answer is it shouldn't be. And Crutchfield mm. knows this too. So one of the things that I did from a collection page standpoint is on the homepage, I put a configurator that said, pick your make model year of car. And when you do, it throws a cookie to the customer and just filters the entire store down to only parts that are compatible with that model making year of car. That's it. That's all you get. And then there's a little widget in the top left that you can change, and then it pops up the configurator again so you can change the, the thing. So it makes the whole store modal to a model making year of car. Do you need to use the configurator? No, the header navigation's right there, right? But that affects what shows up on all the collection pages, and it perpetuates per session. So like, if you're logged in, you are always getting a 1962 Beetle sedan. That's it. And I don't see stores smart enough to do that unless they're Crutchfield. I don't... It is... Yeah. It does seem unusual. That is a thing that stores struggle with, is the larger problem... Like, merchandising in general is hard, but the larger problem of getting people to find... The right person to find the right item at the right time. That is the true struggle of merchandising. And it is literally... Like, in a brick-and-mortar store, that's literally a science. And they... when. We talk about heat maps for e-commerce. We didn't invent that. That came in stores. They used to heat map how people moved through a store and where they spent the most time yeah. and what aisle they looked at the most. All the same stuff, this technology, we're literally borrowing it from like grocery store optimization. And Isn't that wild? And we're starting from square one with it too. Like they yes. have the data set, but like what, what am I going to do? Put like the same data set in for, no, you can't do that. That's, that's not going to work. Um, so takeaways here, um, scoping the collection early if you have a large product database and also creating multiple templates for collection pages. Most stores I work with have one template for collection pages. And if you don't at least have separate templates for like, like overall scope, like new popular, um, back in stock, that sort of stuff, like things that could scope to the entire product database and then things that filter the product database by certain criteria. Um, having two separate templates for that, like, why don't more stores do it? I think that's just because they're disincentivized and they're busy working on a bunch of other things. But like, man, that helps, uh, that helps like click through rate to product detail pages, which is basically the top funnel metric that you have before you get to add to cart to check out. And, and I'm trying to help at every stage of the process and think holistically about it because no one else is. Hop quiz. How can you increase your Shopify sales by 10 to 15%? Well, you could start giving away your Netflix password as a free bonus. What do you mean I'm using too many devices? Or you could use Zipify one-click upsell. Created by the owner of a $100 million e-commerce store and trusted by over 8,100 Shopify merchants, one-click upsell helps you boost your average order value with targeted upsells and cross-sells. You can make pre-purchase upsells right from the shopping cart. You can make post-purchase upsells immediately after a customer completes their order. And with mobile-optimized offer pages that drive sky-high conversions and built-in split testing for maximizing your results, it's no wonder one-click upsell has made its users an extra $139 million in sales. It only takes a few minutes to install the app, launch your first upsell, and start generating 10-15% to 15 more revenue overnight. 
To start your free 30-day trial, go to Zipify.com slash Kurt. That's Z-I-P-I-F-Y dot com slash Kurt. And to get an unadvertised gift, email help at Zipify.com and ask for the Tech Nasty bonus. Tech Nasty. No, all all fabulous advice, and I think for sure the collection page is the most the most overlooked optimization opportunities, like collectively. Yeah. Ah, collectively in your collection. The other one that I think drives us crazy is um, obsessing over the right kind of cart page and and then also trying to optimize for average order value with like various upsell cross-sell strategies. Yeah. What does that look like in Nick D's headspace? So everyone spends too much time thinking about the right way to present the cart. Is it a modal pop-up? Is it a sidebar drawer? Is it a dedicated page? Like, I don't think there's one right way to go about doing it. The problem is when it's inconsistently implemented. So if I add something to cart and it pops a drawer, right? If I click on the cart link, does it pop a drawer? Or does it take me to the cart page? A lot of stores mess it up, right? Uh, well, then you just have two carts. And on Shopify, they have kind of a correct way of doing carts. And it's to have a dedicated cart page at slash cart. Now, for me, I try to do the Shopify-ish way of doing things because, generally speaking, they usually have your interests in mind and trying to go against that, especially in situations where I'm going to be receiving the customer's money. It's not that great of an idea. That's why I don't do a whole lot of changes on the checkout page because they keep locking down the checkout page. Right. Um, the same with having a dedicated cart page. Uh, I think that it makes more sense to make it faster and easier to get to the dedicated cart page and then do that if you have to pick an approach, right? But beyond that, you know, if you want to put in the time and effort to build a cart drawer, like, great, do it, you know? Modal carts are kind of on the outs. I, they feel like a five years ago thing. I wouldn't start doing that right now. Um, but, you know, ultimately I, I have a a strong opinion loosely held about the whole situation. It's If I'm presented with a drawer cart, it's going to be great. One thing I see people definitely screw up, those upsells. Um, <laughs> and so once, once something's been added to the cart, what happens? Do you pop an upsell dialogue before getting to the cart? No, please do not do that. Do not spare the person a click. Uh, provide upsells and cross-sells on the cart page. That's usually the most sensible place to do it. Checkout page usually requires an app, um, and that app requires a hack. And when I think about hacks in Shopify and taking your money, I get scared. So I usually like... No, it's native now. Is it native? Pop-up uh, or upsells post-checkout are now uh, native. Oh, that's post-purchase, though. I mean, post-purchase upsells. I here. mean, on the checkout page, like on the actual, like you have an upsell underneath the order summary on the checkout. Oh, page. yeah. If you're on Shopify Plus, you could do it. Yeah, there's apps that like it, there's. Um, I forgot the name of the app, but um, yeah, there, there's there's apps that'll yeah. do it. And they're like simple and clean, and they just work. But yes, it get, Shopify does not want you to mess with the checkout. They would strongly prefer. That they you just leave the checkout alone, right, right, right. That yeah, seems to like, like that seems to be the the message, right? Yeah, post purchase upsells are a whole different thing. And actually, I I worked for Zipify one click upsell for a little while doing optimization for them. They're an amazing team. I'm glad that I'm glad it's less hacky now 
That's it. I'm glad they don't have to replace the whole checkout system. Yes. Which is yeah, that's gone. That's officially supported night- now. Nightmarish. <laughs> um, but yeah, another thing in checkout, I don't see basic heuristics getting followed in checkout. Um, if you go to Baymard, B-A-Y-M-A-R-D.com, there are a bunch of people from Baymard. there are a bunch of people from Denmark who are way smarter than me that just tell you here's how to do all of e-commerce correctly as a baseline and. Um, they tell you how to handle like quantity selection on a cart page or removing items or estimating shipping or handling upsells or handling um, guest checkout, which is not a problem on Shopify, but you know, they're, they're kind of an enterprise e-commerce system. So like there's a lot of stuff you can take from their playbook if you're going to be designing your own cart page. Um, a lot of cart pages I see don't follow basic best practices for changing quantity for layout, like doing, like they make everything 100% width on the page, which typographically is a disaster. Drives me crazy. Drives me up the wall. They don't handle third-party payment providers properly, like Apple Pay. You should be defaulting to Apple Pay if Apple Pay is available. That's it. 2021, the year we're going to make express checkouts finally get adopted. They're so convenient. They print They're money. so amazing. They print money. I'm sorry. Like, that's why you do your upsells on the cart page. Then you direct people to Apple Pay very firmly and then put a tiny button underneath that's like, or go through the normal checkout if you want. Like, if somebody's Oh, on- okay. So we're going to flip. Normally, it's like proceed to checkout and then our express checkout buttons in the cart. Or I could put the express checkout buttons in the checkout. That, that I don't like. What I, you're suggesting we flip. Express checkout buttons first, then the proceed to checkout button in the cart. Yeah, express checkout should be the primary call to action. So much research that I do. I mean, people thank me for putting PayPal buttons on the cart page. And I'm like, Mm. I didn't put PayPal buttons on. I mean, but they're there, and I guess you're welcome. (laughs) Um, They just want convenience. They don't want to think about filling out a form. And no one knows what shop pay is. I'm sorry, employee at Shopify listening to this. No, it doesn't have any brand equity. No one knows what it is. I barely know what it is. I do this for a living. We'll get there. I'll figure it out in 2021. It's fine. New Year's in 2022. Shop pay, everybody. It's going to be the default. There'll be no US dollar. It'll just be shop pay. Yeah. Linux on the desktop. We're We're just doing it iPad will be a professional computer. <laughs> Let's not get Linux on the desktop. Whoa, now you're crazy. Yeah, I've gone off the rails. There you go. Yeah, now you've gone too far. <laughs> um, what? Uh, well, what else? I mean, this um, is a, this is, what we have so far is very valuable. And but I got one. More well, actually, one. let's go to the core issue. Why do people? <laughs> why do people fight you when someone hires you? It goes help conversion rate optimize my store, and you say here is here empirically is what you should do and then they go no i don't think i should do that uh ego i think it's literally like i'm the one running the show i was i was smart enough to build this business and i have c in my job title and so i you know i have a better sense of what to do than what customers want or what you think customers want i think another reason honestly it's on me uh, I don't know if I present my information well enough. Sometimes I'm just like, here's the research. So some people don't have the time to read a 2000 word report on optimization that's bespoke to their store. Um, I get it. Sometimes I just dump a brick of text on somebody's front porch and it's on them to to like listen to it and ingest it. So I think probably my one thing that I have actually for my 
2021 is like work on presentational skills and haul people on calls more often um, so that I can convey to them the importance of what we, what it is we're doing. Because I think a lot of people hire me to be a sack of money button and then they don't realize that they have to internalize a lot of research and read a lot of reading. Um, so ego and not reading. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, books are from the devil and TV's faster. So yeah, I try to avoid... I'm kidding. <laughs> if I do like a screencast where I'm just like, this is busted, this is busted, you're cool here. This is busted, like maybe it would go better. You don't do screencasts? I do sometimes. I need, The screencast is the executive summary of the 2000 word Nick D. Brick that he has laid on your front porch. But then people don't read the brick. And the brick has that's important true. details, right? Like, well, that's why you like you, there's a teaser in there. Like in the screencast, you're like, uh, you got to change this, and I make recommendations as to how in the report. I summarize the first hundred words of the brick, and then hand you the brick anyway. I'm just like, yes. for more. <laughs> yeah, there you I go. think that would work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are an accomplished author. You wrote uh, Cadence and Slang, a book about interaction design. What else have you written? Uh, I wrote a book about called Value-Based Design, uh, which is effectively a, uh, what's a 160-page dramatic reading of my job description. So if you want to steal all of my playbook and do it yourself, you can buy that. It's at draft.nu slash value. I've written Draft Evidence, which is kind of a mid-career essay retrospective. Um, if you like my personality, then you <laughs> there's about 400 pages of my personality you can buy for reasonably cheap. Um, I've made a bunch of little courses. Uh, if you want screencasts, I do monthly teardowns for Revise Weekly, which is my monthly, uh, or my weekly, um, CRO series, uh, where I give you a bunch of lessons that are very actionable for your own store. I don't know. I write all the time. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going through, I bought this thing called Pod Decks. It's just like icebreaker questions. <laughs> If you could be a personal assistant to anyone, who would it be? Oh, dear God. Um, probably somebody who didn't really need a personal assistant but was drowning in work anyway. I don't know who that would be necessarily. I'm just going to throw out Mark Cuban because that's what everybody says. Mark Cuban. Um, someone who would be like Sola L. Whaley. She would be, I would be a good personal assistant to Sola L. Whaley. I would get shit done. Who's that? She's like a YouTube uh, food celebrity. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah. All right, you win. Okay, great. Mark Cuban's <laughs> too too easy, too obvious. Do you own anything autographed by celebrity? I bet you do. Uh, actually, yes. I in my office, I have. I don't know if it's a celebrity necessarily, but I have an uncut sheet of an Edward Tufte book that's signed by him. That's cool. Which is pretty cool, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And it's like a proof sheet. Like, there's color bars on the bottom and everything. And so, yeah. Which book? Uh, it is, uh, visual explanations. There you go. I had to like double check. Very good. <laughs> uh, it will explain, we'll leave on this note. We'll go so academically nerdy. It, it, what, explain the significance of Edward Tufte. Edward Tufte, uh, is a professor of, uh, professor emeritus now of statistics at Yale, who in the early eighties wrote a book with a dry title. That's actually extremely entertaining called the visual display of quantitative information. That I have a copy of it in my bookshelf. It caused a bunch of like popular publications like Time Magazine and New York Times to overhaul the way in which they display information to the public. 
he talked about how like bite-sized infographics are not as useful for people as like more data dense visualizations. So if you ever see like information visualizations that are like on a map and they're like super, super rich, um, that's his fault. And um, <laughs> I, I think he, he made the like modern way of displaying data very legible to people in a way that like resonated for me as a designer when I was just getting started 15 years ago. Um, and so I have all of his books. Uh, and I mean, I, I respect him enough that I have an unsigned proof sheet over there. So it's cool. Yeah. So if, if I'm on the same page, I'm like, man, I love Edward Tufty. Nick D rules. I'm going to listen to him and take his advice. And I hate carousels. Where can I go to hire you? Uh, I just want, you are my sack of money button. I want to hire the sack of money button. Go to draft.nu slash revise. There are form fields for your name and email address. Put your name and email address in there, and then I get back to you with full application and uh, next steps. I would be so grateful and honored to hear from you. I'm actually a rare moment. Uh, as of this recording, we have an open slot, uh, which almost never happens. So um, get in touch. Uh, I will make the numbers go up in a way that is hopefully not gross, and I will do that by listening to your customers and telling you a bunch of things that might be surprising. I love Get it. Get Nick D, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to do this. That was a good episode. <laughs> E-commerce sales are at an all-time high. So if you've been waiting for the quote-unquote right time to launch your online store, here is your sign. Yes, you've got to launch it now. In 2021, success in e-commerce is going to depend on whether or not you provide an amazing customer experience. And Out of the Sandbox has a 10-year track record of delivering excellent customer experiences by building premium Shopify themes that look and work amazingly well. And that helps merchants make more money. So their best-selling theme, Turbo, fully loaded, easily accommodates high volume large catalog shops or small shops looking for premium performance because it is just that flexible. It is arguably the fastest theme on the market with speed settings that you could control and customization settings that free themes just can't compete with. For 20% off turbo, visit outofthesandbox.com unofficial and use promo code KURT20 at checkout. Try the new theme for two weeks. And if you don't like it, they will give you your money back. How's that for a risk reversal guarantee? That's outofthesandbox.com slash unofficial. Promo code KURT20 for 20% off turbo and a 14-day money back guarantee. If you'd like to help us spread the joy of entrepreneurship, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe up over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find some episode notes, including links to sites we discussed, and maybe some details you missed. You'll also find offers from our sponsors, so please support our show by supporting them. And thank you. The unofficial Shopify podcast was recorded and hosted by me, Kurt Elster, produced by my business partner, Paul Rita, for our Shopify partner agency, EtherCycle. Check us out at EtherCycle.com. Thanks for listening.